James chapter 2, speaking of justification by faith, this text makes an important distinction between uh, justification by faith and its implications in contrast to uh, an empty profession of faith. Frank um, Abagnale Jr. was a poser. He presented himself in many different postures, in many different ways, in many different places. He presented himself as a doctor on one occasion and served as a as a chief resident in a hospital in Marietta, Georgia. Once he presented himself as a lawyer and served on the staff of a state attorney general uh, posing as a lawyer. Once he presented himself as a commercial airlines pilot. Once he presented himself as a stockbroker. And on another occasion, he posed and postured himself as a college professor. But Frank Abagnale Jr. was none of those things. He had a a briefcase full of impressive resumes and phony IDs, but the sad truth was that though he presented himself in many different locations to many different people in that fashion, he was in reality none of those things. You may have seen the story of Frank Abagnale Jr. It's called Catch Me If You Can. Uh, 26 different countries, millions of dollars accrued through fraudulent claims and methods and so on, and uh, he eventually did some serious time, but uh, none of those claims made himself in reality those things. We understand that. My saying this evening that I'm a doctor of medicine does not make it so. My coming in here this evening and saying I have a law degree and have practiced law does not make that so either. And claiming to be a college professor is no substitute for an advanced college degree in which you've earned the authoritative right then to be able to... Uh, handle a college curriculum. The other day on West Street, I was behind a uh, a van, and on the back of that van, it had the Kiwanis, uh, the Kiwanis sticker, if you're familiar with the Kiwanis um, Civic Club. It had the Kiwanis sticker, a uh, terrific kid. Well, I don't know the parents. I certainly don't know the child, but having a sticker on the back of an SUV doesn't make that a terrific kid. And I mean no offense by this either, but having a son or a daughter's name and a number on the back of a SUV doesn't make them a great athlete. And there's something about this text that reminds us of the significant issue of just saying I'm a Christian does not make it so. Professing faith does not guarantee the authenticity of faith. And James lays that out before us in rather clear fashion, in rather startling fashion, if you'll follow with me in James chapter 2, we'll begin in verse uh, verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham, in verse 21, our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What this text is reminding us that faith is absolutely essential in laying hold of Christ as he's offered to us in the gospel. But it takes great pains to elaborate and explain that it's a particular kind of faith. Faith in uh, terms of its saving components basically has um, has three components to it. It has a a knowledge component. It has a conviction to it. And it certainly has a trust component. Uh, the, the early reformers used the, the word notitia for indicating content. There is a content to the gospel. There's a historic con, uh, content to it that's undeniable. First uh, Corinthians 15, Paul says that you've heard according to the scripture that Jesus was crucified, that he was buried, that on the third day he rose again, that he was seen by many witnesses. There is a content to the gospel, an objective content. But then the Holy Spirit opening our minds and our understanding to rightly understand and apprehend that content. There's another work here, and that is He convinces us, the Holy Spirit convinces us of the truthfulness of that content. I become, and the word the, the Reformers used was a census. I assent to that content as being correct and true. And that taking place, then my will is engaged. So, the whole part of us in saving faith is engaged. Our minds are illuminated, our affections, our desires are stimulated and stirred so that the will is engaged. The, the will is never neutral. It's, it's like putting your, your, uh, your car in neutral and revving the engine. The affections and the mind engage the will. And in saving faith and in conversion, the Holy Spirit stimulates the whole part of us, so that we apprehend or we lay hold or we embrace Christ as He's offered to us in the gospel. Now, on the surface, it would appear as if, if you're here on Wednesday nights for the Roman study, it would appear as if there's a conflict between this and between what James chapter 2 is saying and what Paul is saying. But there really isn't. The first thing the text stresses for us uh, is that, that faith is more than just a claim. Real faith is more than just a claim. There's a content, there's a conviction, and there's a reliance or there's a trust, there's a casting myself upon that. The Apostle Paul is concerned to address the issue of legalism in his writings, such as Romans and Galatians and so on. He's concerned about how we appear before a holy God. How can sinful people ever hope to stand in the presence of the thrice holy God? He's talking about the justification of our persons. And he says that faith is the only answer because works will never suffice. Our works will never merit. Our accomplishments, our achievements, our efforts will never merit 
not the least blessing, let alone entrance into heaven. That's what Paul's concerned about in Romans and Galatians. Paul, in James, is concerned more about license. He's concerned of the justification of our faith before other people, how faith looks and how faith shows itself up in real life. So there's no tension between Paul and James is not saying we're justified by faith plus works. That would be Catholic dogma. And he's not saying we're justified by works. What he is saying is that faith is more than just a claim. It's more than just an empty profession. It's more than Frank Abagnale showing up with a stethoscope around his neck and some fraudulently framed and manufactured credentials in an emergency room in Marietta, Georgia, and saying, I'm a resident from such and such school and I've been assigned here. It's more than Frank somehow purchasing a commercial airlines outfit and going into airports and being able to ride in jump seats free because he's presented himself as an American Airlines pilot when in fact he's none of those things. What James is saying in the opening verses here in our text this evening is that real faith, faith that saves, faith that lays hold of Christ is more than an empty profession. It's more than an empty proclamation. It moves beyond my lips to the engagement of my life. Let me give you some examples of how this plays out in real life. Now, I'm sure none of you here watch cheap, mindless tabloid TV. But let's assume for a moment that you do, or somehow or another, in surfing to the Discovery Channel or the Christian Channel one night or Fox News, you happen to pause on A&E and see a rather cartoonish-looking character by the name of Dog the Bounty Hunter. Yeah, some of you have paused too long, I see. All right, before they go out to apprehend a felon, a ruffian, uh, what do they do? They pray. They join hands and they pray. And they pray in the name of Jesus. And then they go out and what kind of language does he use? He's, he's bleeped, but you can read lips, can't you? It's ribald language. It's ripe language. You know, the, the wife, his uh, cohort in, uh, in apprehending these ruffians and felons, you know exactly who I'm talking about. Rather cartoonish herself, one might say. Um, well, she and Dwayne, or Dog as he's known, lived together 14 years and had several children without the benefit of the bonds of matrimony. The scripture would call that sexual immorality. A fancy word for that is fornication. It comes from the word pornea, which has to do with all manner of sexual sin. It falls in line with the great self-deception of of 1 Corinthians uh, 6 and Ephesians chapter 5. Do not be deceived. And then it lists among those as the sexually immoral as being those who have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. So you can join hands and you can invoke the name of Jesus, but it is nothing more than a license and an empty profession because your language and your lifestyle doesn't match the name that you invoke. What about Cher, who's retired for the umpteenth time? Have you ever seen footage? They gather in the back and they join hands and they pray. And then she goes out and delivers a performance that does not exactly match the invocation of the name of Jesus before that performance. 
This is the kind of thing that James is addressing. He's not talking about being justified by what we do, but he's saying because we are justified by a faith that's more than an empty claim, it shows up and translates itself into real life. For those of you who like athletics, it's the athlete who scores the touchdown and punctuates it by looking heavenward and pointing. And yet the point doesn't match the character of the lifestyle. It's the baseball player who, before he steps into the batter's box, crosses himself. But the cross is not expressing itself. The power of the cross and the power of the risen Christ is not expressing itself in the life. This is exactly what James is talking about. He's, he's talking about the damning delusion of saying, but not possessing the reality of a faith that's been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. The affections and desires have been stirred so that I cast myself completely upon Jesus as He's offered me in the gospel. It's the saving faith that responds, the knowledge, the conviction, the trust. It's that kind of faith generated by the Holy Spirit that responds to the repeated invitation of Jesus in the, in the gospels where He says, if you want to follow me, then deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. We can't do any of that apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. But we can say that we have done so. We can have raised the hand. We can have repeated the prayer. We can have, have signed the card. We can have done all those external mechanisms without it translating itself into the fabric of our life. Many years ago now, about two in the morning, I was awakened out of a dead sleep with a, a pounding on my front door. And, of course, it's jarring to be awakened in the middle of the night like that. You know those phone calls that you get, the wrong numbers at two in the morning? And uh, it just, it I don't know how it affects you, but it, it jolts me out of sleep. And the first thing I think of, this is not good news. So the pounding on the door at two in the morning, my first thought was, this is not good news. And... Uh, I throw on some clothes and I go to the door and I open the door and standing there is a very intoxicated Joe David Chapel. And I went from concern to rage. Uh, he had had a fight with his wife and here he was just raving lunatic drunk on my front porch at 2 a.m. in the morning. I invited him in and once I regathered my wits and said, I'm a, you know, I'm a spiritual man and I need to do something spiritual for this guy. I began to uh, talk to him and uh, here's what he said through slurred speech and hardly able to stand. He said, after I've come to Christ, it no longer matters how I live because I'm saved by grace. I can live however I want to because once in grace, always in grace. My friends, that's a damning delusion. It's a damning delusion because it separates, it renders asunder the things that God joins together in the mechanisms of conversion. And that's exactly what James is talking about in these opening verses. He's addressing in verse 14 and the verses that immediately follow a faith that's empty by highlighting, highlighting and emphasizing that real faith is more than a saying. Look at verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he does not have works? In other words, there's, there's not fruit of a converted life. There's not a change of inclination and of lifestyle. Not talking about perfection. 
And not talking about sinlessness here, but a reorientation of my heart and the motives of my life and a, a, a realigning of my affections and my desires. And he, he repeats, not only says in verse 14, but look down at verse 16. If one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. To which he replies, show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. The scripture never separates those two things. It does not put works before faith, but this is the way it's properly said. We are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ alone. But the faith that saves is never alone. Because it's a faith that is generated by the quickening, enabling, converting power of God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes into a person's life and brings them from death to life and to faith and repentance. And he stirs the affections and he illumines the mind and the will is engaged so that I lay my whole self upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And I just don't receive him as Savior. But having received him as Savior, I also accept him as Lord, as a new master to whom now I am submissive with the direction and orientation of my life. Not sinlessly so, not even consistently so, not perfectly so, but there's a fundamental change in the motions of my heart and the orientation of my inward person, my inward being. I say I believe, but is that faith made visible? Does it show up in our language? Does it show up in our appetites? Does it show up in the kinds of jokes that we tell? Does it show up in, in the, the animation of our being, the motivations of our life? Are the fountains, the springs of our inward person inclined in a different direction? We lived in Florida for almost a decade and we'd been there one year and we felt like in order to be true Floridians, we needed to plant some citrus fruit and be able to, to go out in the mornings and pluck uh, oranges off a tree and have fresh squeezed orange juice. So we planted an orange tree at the edge of the back of the house and uh, we waited for approximately eight years for there to be one sprig, one sign, one evidence somewhere that this was an orange tree. It never, I never pulled the first thing off that orange tree. Now, you could come in to, to visit us, you could come in the yard and you'd say, what kind of tree is that? And I could say, it's an orange tree. And you could say, well, prove it. I couldn't. There was no evidence whatsoever of that being an orange tree. That's the thing that James is driving at in the opening verses here. Verse 14, someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? And the grammar of the text demands a no answer. No, that kind of faith is not saving. He gives this illustration in verses 15 and 16. A destitute person, a brother or sister, comes in in need of food and clothing. They lack what is necessary to survive. And our only response is the pat on the back. And we say, well, man, that's tough. We quote a few platitudes. When the tough, when the going gets tough, the tough get going, be warmed and filled, and we send them out still hungry and still improperly clothed. And that's what he's illustrating here is the nature of a faith that merely says and does not do. We had uh, some uh, some people who came up from Hurricane Katrina. They were dislodged, and they came up, and they were here on a Wednesday night. 
Can you imagine if we we passed them by the food line and we said, you know, we've got some good food here tonight and uh, what size uh, what size shirt do you wear? Oh, I'll wear a 1634, a 16,534. Well, sir, that's what I wear. Well... We really hate to hear you're having such hard times. We pat them on the back and say, well, we hope you find some food. We hope you find some clothes. That would be ludicrous. It's just as ludicrous, but eternally damning to simply say, but they're not to be a corresponding reality in our hearts and in our lives. The empty words don't help those to whom they're spoken And the empty words of a profession does not save us either. So in verses 18 and 19, faith is not only more than a claim, but it's more than right doctrine. You know, the the text says that you believe there is one God, you do well. I mean, that's solid to believe there's one God. That affirmation comes right out of the, the, uh, the... Hebrew affirmation in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It was the Shema. It was the orthodox, creedal statement of every believing Jew to believe that there is one God. Not many, but one God. And James is affirming the rightness of that creedal statement. And he's actually putting it in the lips of demons in verse 19, the latter part of verse 19. He's saying the doctrinal affirmation, in substance, there is one God, mouthed by demons, is orthodox and correct, but in their case, it's not saving or converting. In fact, demons recognized Jesus. They recognized Him as the Holy One of God. They understood there's a coming day of judgment and torment. They said, if you come to torment us before the time. They understood that there was a coming day of accountability. They they recognized His His power and His person. There was nothing converting in their recognition. We don't recognize the conversion of demons. And that's the point of what James is saying here is, is saving faith is more than having right understanding of right doctrines, of a right knowledge. Certainly that's important. There's an important component to that. But saving faith just doesn't stop at saying, I, I believe there was a Jesus. I've had people tell me that before and say, well, I, sure, I believe that there was a Jesus. I also believe there's a George Washington and a Ben Franklin and an Abraham Lincoln. There's, there's nothing converting about that affirmation or that acknowledgement. It's more than right doctrine. Some years ago, I was teaching a new members class, and um, this lady was seated there, and I was comparing. I was actually using the Apostles' Creed as an example of, of uh, the fundamental doctrinal statements. If you're from a background that confessed on occasion in a worship context, or if you've ever been in a group, a, a Bible study, a class where you've studied the Apostles' Creed, it's, was, uh, it's commonly believed to be that it was the first creedal statement that when you came to faith prior to your baptism, this is what you publicly confirmed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was born of the Virgin, uh, conceived under Pontius Pilate, crucified, suffered, dead, resurrected. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the life everlasting. I, I believe that uh, Christ is coming again to judge the, the living and the dead. And I believe in heaven and hell. There are 10 or 12 orthodox creedal statements. Anyway, I was going over that about what is an essential content of the Christian faith. And I use the Apostles' Creed as an example. 
Pat Webster, whom I saw a couple of weeks ago when I went back to Fort Myers to do a memorial service, she was seated in uh, that membership class that day to my right, and as I'm talking about the Apostles' Creed, tears began to course down her cheeks, and she would wipe them. In my mind, I noticed this, and in my mind I think, I wonder what's offensive about the Apostles' Creed. It's universally believed in Christendom. shouldn't be anything controversial about that. After the class was over, Pat came and she said, you know, I was overcome by emotion as I heard you talking about what is contained, the doctrines, the truths that are contained in the Apostles' Creed. For 30 years, I confessed that creed in a Catholic church and I never knew, never understood what I was confessing. What's the difference? What's the difference? Right notions or right content had now through the mysterious, powerful, hidden operation of the Holy Spirit had now worked itself into her heart and she was gripped by those truths that there is a Creator who is almighty and powerful, who has a Son who is our Redeemer, who's been conceived and born of the Holy Spirit, by whom we have forgiveness of sins, by whom we're delivered from a coming day of judgment in a moment of universal accountability. And suddenly the Holy Spirit took the truth, and not in that moment she was already converted, but she had been awakened to the truth. So James is not condemning right notions and sound doctrine. All of that's important. But what he is saying to us is this, guys. Faith is more than an empty claim. It's more than just having right notions about things. In fact, in verses 20 to 26, he says that saving faith shows up in the life. It's not just a claim. It's not just a doctrinal affirmation, but it shows up in the life because the faith that saves involves my whole being. An understanding of the truth by which the Spirit enables me to see and comprehend my heart that is stirred to embrace those truths and a will that is engaged to receive and rest on Christ as He's offered in the gospel. There's an undeniable show factor to following Christ because it is produced by the indwelling Holy Spirit. A couple of examples in the text that James suggests. He, he gives Abraham offering up Isaac as an example. And he goes back to Genesis 22. He says that, that Abraham was already justified. He was already converted. He was already a man who had embraced God and what he knew of God at that point when he offered Isaac. He was not justified by offering Isaac. He offered Isaac because he was justified. Do you follow the subtlety there? The works followed the faith. They didn't precede it. He uses the illustration of Rahab, a prostitute, a Gentile who lived in Jericho, someone that would have been considered outside the, the, covenant, the covenant household of Israel. And yet she heard the promises of God, God judging Jericho and giving Jericho. She heard all of that and she was moved to believe that it was true and it affected her behavior so that she risked all that she had. She risked the lives of her family to receive the spies, to protect them, and she even identified herself as aligning herself with them, she gave them a sign that they knew, and therefore she was spared. Two examples. They believed, and therefore it changed their behavior. Can I, can I just tell you that I really think that's what Hebrews 11 is about? 
Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence or the conviction of things not seen. And then you have all these wonderful examples of what faith looks like. It looks like Abraham responding to the call of God and leaving the Ur of the Chaldees. It looks like Abraham offering Isaac up. It looks like Moses forsaking the treasures of Egypt, choosing rather to identify himself with the reproaches of God's people. It looks like Abel offering up a better sacrifice. It looks like people refusing to accept the terms of this life and were willing to lay down their life because they had so embraced God as he had offered themselves. Example after example in the book of Hebrews. This is what justifying faith looks like. It responds, it obeys, it acts, it worships. Not perfectly. Not always wholeheartedly, if ever wholeheartedly. Abraham was a real man with many flaws, but he was a justified man. And the evidence of that justification showed up in his life through the implications of what faith looked like. I could take a paper clip this evening and I could... I could unfold this paper clip and I could tell you that I'm going to go over here to this, uh, to this um, outlet. I suppose it's a 110 outlet. And I could tell you that I'm going to take this paper clip. Now, if you're squeamish, you may not want to watch this. Do not try this at home. I could tell you that I'm going to stick the ends of this unfolded paper clip into this outlet. And I will immediately be plugged into the power grid that's located out here on Wolf River Boulevard. And there will be literally thousands of volts coursing through my body that will coagulate my blood, alter the rhythms of my heart and scramble my brains so that I will repeat many incoherent things that I should not be held accountable for. Now watch this. I now have thousands of volts passing through my body. You don't believe that. And you know why you don't believe that? Because you know that one touch of that 110 outlet with two ends of this paper clip, I will have an immediate response. It will be undeniable. And what James is saying is this. When there's real faith, faith that has been brought about by the mysterious, powerful, inward working of the Holy Spirit, it will inevitably show up in the life. And where it has not happened, it will never move beyond the profession to a possession. I know someone that would be somewhat dear to me, and his precious mother takes consolation in the fact that when he was 14 years of age, he prayed the sinner's prayer. And he walked the aisle and he was baptized and he became a member of that church. And I've known that man for over 20 years. And I've never seen an appetite for the things of God. I've never seen an interest in worship. I've never seen an amendment of life. I've never seen any change in his priorities, his motives, his his coarseness. And yet she would take comfort and solace in something that took place. 30 plus years ago. This is what James is talking about. The faith that saves shows up imperfectly, perhaps inconsistently, but it does and will inevitably show up. Our Father, we're thankful and grateful that Christ saves 
it's not it's not our faith, it's not our works, it's not our profession, but it's Christ who saves, who so works in our life by the power of the Holy Spirit as to effect an inward change that begins to show up in our lives. Lord, we're humbled by this. We're we're humbled by the work of the Spirit, which we're incapable of seeking apart from the outpouring of your grace and your goodness. Lord, might this text be be an an alerting of our souls, an alerting of our hearts, and uh, might it all be for our good and your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.